Welcome to D-Next, the innovation and entrepreneurs podcast in Durham region. On today's episode, we welcome Gord Martineau of Canada's legendary, game-changing and globally recognized media network, City TV. Gord Martineau is an award-winning Canadian television journalist. Many of the world's leaders have been interviewed by Gord Martineau. His list of interviewees is comprehensive and includes such figures as Prime Minister Trudeau, Clark, Mulroney, and Chrétien, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, and the late West German Chancellor Willy Brandt. He has provided enthralling on-location coverage of major world events from China, Japan, Thailand, Argentina, Brazil, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Denmark, the United States, and of course, Canada. Today, we talk about media, technology, democracy, and innovation. Well, thank you, Gordon Martineau, for joining us on D-Next. It's uh, an honor and a privilege to have you with us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, Gord, you have been someone who has seen a drastic evolution and transition in media since your time and the work that you're doing now. If you could, how would you describe the state of modern news media in Canada or even globally? Well, to say that it's in a state of transition would be a, an enormous understatement. I mean, we've never seen, uh, similar to the pandemic, we've never seen a seismic change like this before and the answer uh, or the reason is, in one word is the internet um, because the advertising dollars have more or less dried up to a large extent in terms of conventional broadcasting uh, the money has gone to the internet because that's where the eyeballs are uh, it's a simple mathematic equation so it has meant that uh, broadcasters um, news media in general print and radio have had to adjust to this new reality. And that means having not the same amount of money we are normally used to having in order to do the things that we need to do. So there have been staff cuts, program changes, formatic changes, and you know attempts to monetize exposure on the internet. All of these factors have, have gone into kind of uh, getting media to back to the place where they were, but I don't think there's any going back to what was it's the new reality in terms of media. And it's also a dangerous time, I think, because when you consider, in terms of local news, as one example, you know, local news is their object, their objective and, and their mandate is to provide audiences, listeners and readers with information that is of interest to them locally. And in terms of political situations, I mean, take city hall coverage, for example, that's crucial uh, because decisions are made that affect your daily lives. And, you know, the, the behavior of politicians, the policies they enact, the legislation they establish, all of these things have to be covered. And, and they're in danger of not being covered because there isn't the money to cover these things. And that goes beyond City Hall. It goes provincially and nationally. So these are um, difficult times, to say the, to say the least, for, in terms of general, uh, generalization in media. Do you think on the flip side of that, from an audience perspective, there's a big upside? I mean, the average person now has access to all sorts of different media streams and information coming at them. Do they yeah. benefit in this transition at all? They do because there are more points of view. However, 
it's more of a challenge for people navigating the internet to know what is credible and what is not. Uh, there are, you know, organizations out there that, you know, who, who thrive on disinformation. Um, and, and, you know, the number one rule in journalism, as you know, is if your mother tells you she loves you, verify it. <laughs> so it's the verification of the information that you're seeing that is crucial. And so I would suggest for people navigating the internet, if they want to get the real deal, they go where the traditional media are on the internet, because you're going to get, you know, the standard journalistic uh, ideals that, that are espoused and, and, and you'll get the correct information, the one that is most meaningful to the questions you have. Okay, take us back to the early days of City TV. Uh, that was a fairly revolutionary time. Uh, you can maybe sort of explain that to us. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> was there a lot of similarities to what is happening now? Or just tell me a bit about that time. This was a groundbreaking exercise. Nothing like this had ever been done before. Um, it, it was, okay, I'll, I'll back it up a little bit. I was at CTV Montreal in 1977. And um, I was a, I, I, I mentioned to the people at CTV Montreal that I wasn't happy being there. I wanted to move on. Uh, I could have stayed there if I wanted to. I could have gone to CTV Toronto if I wanted to, from whence I had come. Or the people who own CFCF, CTV Montreal, also owned a company called Multiple Access. Multiple Access was one of the first high-tech firms in Canada. And Multiple Access owned uh, a big piece of City TV in Toronto. So they suggested to me that I consider working at City TV in Toronto. My immediate reaction was, are you insane? Nobody in their right mind would work at City in those days. They didn't even have a newsroom. And they had all this wacky programming on, like talk shows where, where there were fist fights and brawls. And it just was uh, a sensationalistic kind of spoof on traditional media. But they said, no, hang on, here's what we're going to do. And they sat me down and said, you know, we plan some major changes there. We're going to do physical changes to the building at 99 Queen Street East, as well as uh, we're going to tear apart the entire uh, programming um, schedule. And we're going to get heavily involved in news. Okay. So they suggested I go and meet with Moses Neimer in New York City. That's where he was at the time. And I said, okay. So I woke up that morning in Montreal, flew to New York, met with Moses, and it just happened to be the same time and day as the giant eastern seaboard blackout that happened in 1977. The entire eastern right. seaboard of North America was blacked out, electrically speaking. Uh, so in any event, it, so that kind of factored into travel plans and everything else, but I ended up in New York, and we sat outside the Pierre Hotel in Manhattan at the Outdoor Cafe, and Moses explained to me his objective, and it was a very wise one. Um, he had some great ideas and, and see at the time when you watch local news on television or I'm sorry, not local news, but you watch news on television, what you got locally and nationally was a, the lead story was always some international or national development uh, of major importance. Nobody was covering the backyard uh, to any large extent. That was not high on the totem pole. So the idea was this was going to be city TV. We were going to cover the city of Toronto. And we were going to do that by getting people out on the streets and gathering news in a way no one else had ever done it. We were also going to reflect the cultural makeup of the city, which is something no one had at that point addressed. 
everywhere you looked on on television in Toronto in those days, all you saw were white faces. You didn't see Asian faces. You didn't see brown faces or black faces. You didn't get, uh, you know, a wide spectrum of points of view. So that was another objective of ours. I mean, we had people like Jojo Chinto. Nobody in their in, in conventional broadcasting would even remotely consider hiring this man. But, you know, he was a black man. And further to that, we pushed the envelope because we knew there were tensions between the black community and police. So we made Jojo Chinto our crime reporter. And what year was this, Gord? This was 77? 1977. Okay, yeah. And so that was another initiative. And and we had this guy, Colin Vaughn, who at one time was a city councillor in Toronto. And he knew all the ins and outs of City Hall. And, and as, as I grew to know him, I realized how smart he was. And so he was going to do the political beat. So he knew whereof he spoke when it came to political affairs and, and so on. And so we had not just reporters, but faces and names that were unusual and that you would remember. The idea was when you were switching channels, when you were going through the spectrum of channels, when you hit city, you knew it. There was an instantaneous right. recognition. So that was the overall plan. And we were the first television station in the world to be 100% videotaped. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. We were really scrambling. Uh, and, and thank God Alan Waters showed up <laughs> in 19, I think it was late 78 or early, early 79, where he decided he would take majority ownership of City TV. And at that point, uh, you know, ideas are great in broadcasting, but I, putting an idea into everyday practice requires a lot of money. We didn't have the money. But when Alan Waters came on board, we knew we had the money. And the place just exploded because City TV basically was an idea factory. You've got City TV, um, City Pulse, and, and I'll back it up a little bit. It, it got the name City Pulse because Multiple Access, which owns City, also owns CFCF, and the newscast in Montreal was called Pulse. So we decided to call it City Pulse in Toronto. And even the desk layout in, in the newsroom was exactly the same. And some of the people, the first news director we had was a guy named Bert Cannings. I'd worked with Bert at CFCF in Montreal for years. So that was the familiar thing. Also, the newsroom at the time was located in the Hampton Court Hotel, Motor Hotel, at the northeast corner of Jarvis and Carleton. It was it in was an actual also, hotel? Yes, the it was. And <laughs> it was, it was, it became the first ever Four Seasons Hotel that, that, Izzy, that Izzy Sharp had uh, established. So the newsroom was in a conference center there because the newsroom at City was being renovated. So... Um, I walked in in 1977, this long-haired, freaky guy on a motorcycle from Montreal and didn't know anybody there. And, uh, you know, it was a leap of faith because at that point I could have stayed in Montreal. I could have gone to CFCF or CFTO in Toronto, but I decided I either know what I'm doing at this point or I don't. Now's a good time to find out. Well, you know, certainly the experiment you were involved with, you know, the mythology, I guess, of Moses, and it was really the shot that was heard around the world. You, you, yeah. Do you feel as though you were part of revolutionizing news and media? No question. No question. It was the most interesting, the most innovative, the most progressive, and the most successful uh, initiative in local television broadcasting in the world period. It had never been done before the way we did it. And we decided to break all the rules and we were laughed at. And, you know, people looked down their noses at us in broadcasting. But um, suddenly 
the things we were doing, we were seeing on air at other stations. They were imitating what we were doing. So, you know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, as they say. So we knew we were on the right track. And when we had the money to carry out the ideas that we had, there was no stopping it. It, it became a monster. So what do you think it was that made it special? Was it just the confluence of factors? Was there a driving kind of electricity behind it all? People felt they had access. One of the things we did every day in the newscast was the major issue of the day people always had an opinion about. So we went and we called it Moss or Man on Street. We sent a reporter and a camera out to interview people, you know, just walking down the street, what they thought of a particular issue. And people, I think, enjoyed seeing themselves on television. And it was our daily mantra. We did it every day, relentlessly, whether, you know, come hell or high water. And so people felt as though they had a sense of access to city and that they belonged there, that this was their station. And, and I think the sense of belonging was, was hugely uh, important to us. And, and it really translated into a great deal of success. You think there's uh, a station or I guess a news organization today that mirrors some of that pioneering energy? Well, I think some of the aspects of it, yes, but none in particular uh, do what City did. City was a very friendly but in your face organization. It was you. This is what, you know, David Crombie, the former mayor of the city of Toronto, actually coined a phrase and he was right. He said, uh, the, the streets of Toronto are your newsroom. And he was right. You know, we were out there and we talked to people every day. We interacted with people and look at the program that we had, the programming. You know, it was always about including the audience. When you have audience inclusion, they feel as though they have a home there. They have an organization that cares about what they think and who they are. And that was hugely important to us. And it worked very, very well. So I keep seeing similarities to, you know, maybe what is happening out there today, especially now with the recalibration and redistribution of the urban population. If uh, trends continue on as they are, people moving out of the downtown core or not moving into the downtown core, the surrounding cities and the suburbs, perhaps becoming a bit more populated. Do you yep. think that local news is getting the coverage and attention it needs and deserves? Or is that being filled by what we can best describe as, you know, citizen journalism or stuff that goes on on, on Facebook that covers neighborhood happenings? I mean, what's your sense of of where local news is right now, because we also have a lot of our attention being driven all over the world to what's happening in China, what's happening in Africa, certainly yeah. what's happening in the, in the United States. But yeah. where is local news right now? Local news right now is struggling. Uh, and, and the reason is that if people are farther afield, in other words, if your downtown core, or your city core is uh, undergoing change and people are abandoning that kind of idea to move elsewhere, and we've seen that happening you know, a great deal more because of real estate prices and because of COVID, uh, that people are moving farther afield and feel if, if, if they don't have to be downtown, they can buy a much larger home for themselves and their children and their families uh, somewhere else. And so there you have uh, an expanding population, a mushrooming, if you will, of the population uh, moving outward. And so, so reporting on that and addressing those needs has is, become more difficult and requires more staffing and more money. And right now there isn't the money. And so that's, this is the struggle. So then you have to go where the eyeballs are and that's the internet. 
So you have to kind of refocus your attention to whatever you're doing to include digital in everything you do. You have to think about, you know, newspapers have to think about their websites. Everyone does. You address your websites. And, and this is where the people are. And, and, you know, so that's what you do. You know, you have organizations like BlogTO, which I think is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It really does a great job in, in, in doing what, what is important in Toronto. Uh, it doesn't address every issue, but, but it really gets into to a lot of them. And I think they do a great job. Um, so you, you need more, um, let's say, Blog Oshawa, Blog Pickering. You, know, you need those things and you have to incorporate them in the things that you're doing if you're calling yourself a newsroom so the task becomes more difficult but uh it's it's worth it if you want to get to the viewers and your advertisers will will see that if you have the numbers they'll go there okay so on this note you know we talk a lot about entrepreneurs on this series uh you know let's just go down this path a little bit then so if we're gonna create uh, you know, a brave new future that benefits everyone in this area. Let's talk about how important entrepreneurs are going to be. Uh, you know, what's your thought on that? Well, we need more of them. Uh, you know, the people, for example, I just gave you the example of BlogTO. Who started that? Whoever did it was an entrepreneur. So you need more of those people. You need more people who see the vision and the wisdom of doing things that will attract larger numbers of people. And for me, that means local. Uh, or regional, if you will. Uh, that's where your people are. That's the, those are the people you want to talk to. And if you, and again, if you have the audiences in substantial numbers, the advertisers will follow. They'll pay. Okay, you, you've you've you know have probably one of the more you know celebrated, decorated uh, journalistic careers in Canada in recent memory. Anyway, uh, you know during that you know really productive time that you had and are still having so i know you're involved in so many things uh, are there some standout interviews uh, that come to mind uh not so much interviews but incidents and sure. things that i've done uh, you know every prime minister dating back to pierre trudeau uh, i've interviewed and, and you know they all have their own interests and and i would say the more interesting uh ones were trudeau Chrétien, and stephen harper these are these were guys who who had a very uh, strong opinion and sense of who they are and what they wanted. Uh, you know, some of the others, not so much. Um, travels, I got to travel the world because of, of journalism and also because of some charitable initiatives I was involved in. But, you know, I covered tsunami. We'd never seen a, a, a tidal wave like this and the in, in, incalculable damage that it did. I mean, it traveled a full two kilometers inland, smashing everything in its path. So I went to Thailand, uh, Indonesia and Sri Lanka to cover the effects. And I'd never seen anything like it. And, and for me, it was totally interesting. Uh, Cambodia, I went there and, and you know, we, we, you know, we have this problem with history repeating itself that those who don't learn from it tend are destined to repeat it. And in terms of massacres, I mean, I did the one in Rwanda, I did uh, Cambodia, where there's a tower seven stories high of nothing but skulls in Phnom Penh uh, that is kind of a shrine to the to the uh, ridiculous and, and the maniacal slaughter that happened there. And, you know, I went to Afghanistan and and, uh, and covered parts of the war. Uh, and, and But, you know, when you're talking about interesting places, all of them were, all of them were. I've been all over South Asia and many parts of the world, but in particular, 
the place that always comes back to me is the Eastern Canadian Arctic up in Iqaluit in Baffin Island. I have never seen such incredible natural beauty as the, the, the scenes I encountered there. I was just awestruck by the whole thing and dying to get back there. So, I mean, this is pretty amazing uh, journeys and adventures that you've had and, and you know, which uh, most people, uh, you know, uh, with save being able to see this stuff on the internet, don't get to experience. When, when you're out there uh, telling the, these stories of these people in these different places, does it teach you anything about, you know, where you live right now? Is, is there commonalities among these places? Are things completely different? I mean, what's your, what's your take? I'll tell you with my reaction each time. Uh, Steve Bourne is my producer and shooter. And every time we go somewhere, he shoots all my stuff. Uh, we've been all over the world together. And every time we come back, we kind of look at each other and laugh because as soon as you're at the airport, you can hear people whining and moaning about uh, what they <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what they have or what they don't have. <coughs> and, and they just don't get that they live in the greatest country in the world. They just don't really understand how lucky they are to live in this country. This is an extraordinary country. And the more you look at world events and study what's going on elsewhere, the more you come to the realization that, wow, am I ever lucky. I'm so glad I live here. Okay, so nice segue back into current events and politics. Yeah. You, you've had the good fortune uh, and sort of developed wisdom now, you know, to have interviewed our national leaders uh, over some time. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and maybe if we use the two Trudeaus as as bookends a bit, yeah. do you think that our national uh, government, our politicians are a lot different now than they were in the 70s because of their media savvy? Is there a big difference or is it still the no. same? No, it's, it's basically still the same. You have the same kind of uh, axioms that you have in, in, in politics today as you had back then. And, you know, there, there are politicians who uh, have no business being doing, doing what they're doing. And yet you have other ones who are just, uh, you know, shining examples of, of the way things should be done. Uh, people who know what they're talking about and know what they're doing. And, you know, you, you, you make up your own ideas. But of course, when you're a journalist, you have to be totally objective. Your opinion does not matter. And you do not let it enter into what you're saying or what you're doing. It's it's all about the facts and the story. And do you think that is a philosophy that's still widely practiced in journalism? I, I just look to what's going on south of the border in terms of news media and audiences fragmenting off. Uh, do you? How would you? If there was a scorecard for today's journalism, how would we be doing? Well, we're very different today. I mean, look at uh, two examples would be CNN and Fox, uh, you know, each have an agenda. I would, I would, I'm more gravitated towards CNN because it's more of an objective agenda. Although, you know, it's very subjective in a lot of things they do and say, because there's a maniac in the White House and you have Fox News that totally endorses everything he does. And, and it's with them, it's blind faith. They don't care what he does. He's just, he's the leader. And, and you know, they, they uh, acquiesce to whatever his agenda is. Whereas CNN, for example, to their credit, will point out the, the fake stuff, the lies, um, you know, the, the reprehensible conduct of, of the man who's supposed to be the leader of the, of the free world. Um, so I think it's by necessity that CNN and NBC, MSNBC do what they do. They point out, you know, that the inconsistencies in, in the president's behavior and the ridiculousness of his policies rolling back 
environmental concerns, anything with the name Obama on it is something he wanted to destroy. I mean, this is a guy we've never seen this kind of president ever before uh, because he's not a politician. And I think because he's not a politician is one of the things that got him elected in 2016 is because he didn't follow the traditional rules. And and people, Americans seem to like that. And, and also they have a deep mistrust of government in general. So to see someone who is that cowboyish and that different was um, exciting for them. But the, but his execution of policy has left a lot to be desired. So the relationship between leadership, news media, and how it comes together in our daily lives as a you know common citizen, we're seeing it play out in the United States. Do you, could that ever happen here in Canada? Um, I, I don't think so. We're different people. You know, we, we, a lot of people have a tendency to say, well, we're just like Americans, but I don't think we are. Um, we're more, uh, we have a better perspective on ourselves and on the world. Americans, for example, have a tendency to, to be uh, navel gazers. You know, they, they, the things that are important to them are what's happening in America and nothing else. Uh, so they don't really go beyond their borders in terms of their thought patterns. I mean, sometimes, you know, you'll get certain segments of the population, of course, who are very enlightened. But by and large, Americans are concerned with America. And, and I guess I understand that. But Canada has always had um, a, a look at what the world is doing. We've always been interested in what the world is doing. I mean, we are specialists in documentary uh, performances. And, you know, right. these are the things that excite us is, is what's going on in the world and our place in the world. And, you know, we are a welcoming country. We're a multicultural country. We will never stop being that way. We'll never apologize for it, nor should we. And so I think when, when a person comes from elsewhere in the world and moves to this country, they really feel that they've, they've hit the jackpot because this is a country which offers absolutely everything. So a lot of that, again, in my mind, has to, you know, that sentimentality, those realities are often reflected and mirrored in the media, which helps to, you know, reinforce it or explore it or, you know, just make it, uh, I guess, uh, real or give it some historical context. Uh, and these days, a lot of that uh, ability to tell those stories, just about what is going on in the current zeitgeist, uh, uh, is not in the hands of a single few trained producers or storytellers or journalists, but it's out into the masses now. I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty common thing. Do you, you know, kind of circling back on this idea again, but how do you think that changes the overall relationship that news has to, you know, a, a well-functioning society if anybody can tell the story? Well, because there's been such a shift in how we do what we do, uh, and the finances required to do what we do, then um, many of the things that we do um, are, are not done to the extent that perhaps they should be. There should be more um, intense interest in what is happening locally, and of course nationally and internationally. But, but again, the, the audiences are now on the internet, and we've seen the demise of television in general because, for example, as you know, you can say and do things on Netflix or Prime or Hulu or HBO or any of the streaming services that you cannot do on conventional television because it has a certain set of rules. You can say and do things in those streaming services that you would never even conceive of doing on television. So all of that has changed. And, and again, it all comes down to the money. 
The desire is there to do the things that we do and, and have been doing, but the money is not available. So we've had to adjust, and, and I think the shakeout is, is still underway. I think the next five to six years will tell the story of, of you know, how journalism will survive over the long term. <clears throat> so did you, were you able to predict the rise that, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook would have as, I guess, quasi-legitimate news organizations, which I suppose they are now. Did you see this coming when they first started, maybe 10 years ago, whatever it was? Not initially. I didn't see the uh, the, the profound impact they would have, um, not just journalistically, but societally in general. I mean, they they really changed the way a lot of people think about certain things, and, and they changed the way people's viewpoints um, are shaped when it comes to international uh, affairs and even their basic lifestyles and how Twitter has changed. I mean, now we have influencers. I mean, you, you have a Kylie Jenner who uh, has, I don't know, two and a half million followers every day. So what she does is important to a lot Eight of people. And, and by comparison, you have Selena Gomez who has um, 600 million followers. I mean, <clears throat> so she becomes an important person. And she may not be the brightest uh, bulb in the chandelier, but you know she, she, she. You have to congratulate her because she's smart, and she knows where her audience is. She knows who she is, and she knows that people are interested um, in things other than hard politics and and hard news. That that, that they are interested in more. I don't know, fluffier uh, things that happen in society. You know, uh, lifestyles, clothing, um, many philosophies about you know how to get along in the world and, and ideals and this sort of thing. So I, I think it's a good thing that the internet has brought us all those things because we've, we've, we've opened our minds to different ways and different thought and thought patterns, but um, it's, it's had a huge negative effect on daily journalism. So as the private sector diversifies and, you know, scrambles to figure out, uh, you know, their business model and, and, so, and again, they will be, you know, big winners and big losers probably in that transition. Public broadcasting uh, has sort of, in some areas, maybe taken a beating uh, in terms of, you know, public opinion in different places. Uh, but where, what are your thoughts on the current state of public broadcasting as the arbiter of, you know, news that matters uh, for their constituents, whether in Canada or around the world? You really see the difference, the contrast when, if you were to switch from, let's say, MSNBC and CNN and one that watched PBS, the news hour, you really feel the difference because it is far more objective and far less opinionated in its day-to-day -day coverage of daily events. Um, you know, they will point out, let's say, the inconsistencies of, of political uh, motivations and, and machinations, but they are totally objective and they are rigidly objective. Whereas um, conventional media now are um, at the whim of things that happen in society because they feel it's necessary to point out what's going on. I mean, when you, when you have um, a president of the United States condoning, for example, uh, the people in Texas who surrounded Joe Biden's campaign bus and hurled abuse and, and things at them, rather than saying, hey, you know, that's offside, or, or I wish you wouldn't do that, that's not really the way we are. Uh, he condoned it by saying, I love Texas. So, you know, and he's given the, the green light to, to white nationalism. 
You know, you can't let that go by. You can't uh, in, in a right thinking society. So the fact that it's pointed out on CNN, MSNBC, uh, CBS, ABC and all the rest of them, <clears throat> excuse me, has got to be considered a positive because they recognize it for what it is. Aberrant behavior that's unacceptable. So there, there are those who would suggest that the current ability for a president or any leader to talk directly to the people through mechanisms like Twitter, uh, you know, whatever is going to be our future uh, mode of doing that, whether it's TikTok, uh, apparently is on the rise now in politics. But that was given license because of a certain crisis in journalism that happened maybe 10 or 12 years ago, where a lot of very well-respected anchors and reporters, both in Canada and around the world, uh, were seen to be less than perfect. And there's a, a number of examples that come come to mind where there's a bit of a fall from grace. And perhaps some would suggest because it's such a competitive area for eyeballs and audiences and advertising share that certain things were done that maybe weren't, say, ethical. Um, uh, do you feel that uh, there is some upside to leaders being able to talk straight to the people without going through the filter of media? Or, I mean, we see the danger, but is there a positive? Well, initially uh, and overall, yeah, sure, it's a great thing when you can have world leaders talking to their people. But in the case of, let's say, Donald Trump, uh, because I know that's what you're driving at, uh, he does it unguardedly. You know, his handlers and his advisors have repeatedly told him, uh, you know, that you might run, run that bias first before you put it on Twitter. But, you know, but at the same time, it exposes the man for who he is and what he is. But having a direct link to the populace uh, via a Twitter account or Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever social media service you, you care to, to name, if you've got a, correct, a direct link to the people who voted for you, and the people you're looking after, that's a big plus because you can, you know, forward your agenda by communicating with people saying, you know, I think we should do this or do that um, and, 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 and solicit opinions. So that's a really, really powerful two way street. And um, some leaders, however, do not uh, play it, you know, the right way. I mean, they, they they say, this is the way it's going to be. This is what I think. And, and, you know, imagine my concern, what you think. That's not the way it should be. It should always be a two-way street because it is, after all, um, a means of communication and, and should be done the right way. And by contrast, our prime minister uh, was also seen as a, a bit of a guru of social media or perhaps a, a darling of being able to utilize the platform in a fresh way in the early days of his campaign uh, and his uh, tenure. And you have a really good example of, I guess, two two leaders in two very powerful countries who've mastered the use of social media in a way that we've never seen before. Um, how, how do you think our government uh, is using this sort of newfound power in direct uh, communication with the people? Well, look at the way it's used. I mean, this is a, a facility that you can get directly to people just by hitting a few keys on a keyboard. Whereas to put your point across through advertising, for example, will cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So it is extraordinarily efficient to be able to talk to people and put forward your agenda. Um, and, and in doing so, when, when you have an avenue like this, if you're a straight shooter and you talk to people directly, Man, that's 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 really powerful because you can 
You can discuss any number of things via the internet, via social media. You could never do that before. This is totally new, and I think a very positive thing to have if used in the right way and, 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 and in a responsible way. Okay, and circling back a little bit to how we started this conversation, and again, you know, uh, giving a nod to, again, people like yourself uh, and Moses Neimer and those people who really took to reinvent the shape of things at a certain very important pivotal time, I think, in which I think we're uh, seeing again. Do you think that journalism is having a bit of a renaissance now? Is there is there a big uh, kind of rebirth in the understanding the importance of news gathering and, and uh, dissemination? Well, yes. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to reconnect with the audience in that they are hiring younger people with a younger look, a more an even more multicultural look because they want to connect with the audience because that's who the audience is. Uh, the problem there is that most people of that age group are getting their news on the internet. They're not relying on conventional media. So conventional media has to has to be in a position of relevance and it is struggling to find that relevance. And uh, it, it, you can't give it up, you can't walk away from it, or you, know, you may as well just go home and, and you know, close the doors and turn off the lights. But this is something that you have to struggle to do. And you have to do it by using both media. Um, you know, if you're in television, you use television, and you use the internet. You use um, all of the social media uh, aspects that are at your service and, and at, at your disposal, YouTube, whatever you care to name, TikTok, you know, you have to take advantage of, th of those things and present material that is significantly interesting for people to want to go where it is. And if you originate it, let's say on television, and then send it to the internet, you're probably sending a message that, hey, the real deal, the, the, you know, the source of this material is television or radio or print. Okay, so as we wind down to our last few moments here together, and you know, I could probably speak for another two or three hours to you about your your insights and your experiences, because it really is quite fascinating on many levels, but we only have a little bit of time left. I want to know from your perspective, what you think as we look ahead, again, pivotal times are on the eve of a big election. Uh, so many things are changing. We haven't even touched the subject of the pandemic and how that's really changed our lives and the, the increasing importance of media. But looking forward, what do you think are the most important things that we should know or at least think about with regards to the future of news, media, or just how that all interacts with our society in general? I think that people need to go for a variety of sources and not stick to just one or two sources for their information. We've always espoused that anyway. We tell people, look, when you're watching a newscast on television at six o'clock, we have what we used to call a buck 30 to tell the story, which is a minute 30, right? If you want detail, you go to a newspaper because uh, let's let's face it, if you're in the news game in a newspaper, you want to print more information, you just print another page, but you can't print another minute in terms of television. We're locked into 47 or 48 minutes per hour uh, once you factor in uh, commercial content. So if you want more opinions, you want more information, you want a variety of, of, uh, of perspectives on a specific event, go to a number of sources. Uh, go online, there are several. You know, if the story is significant enough, it's being covered by more than one agency. So, you know, do that, you know, and, and 
and take an interest in the things that are happening because they will really have an effect on, on what you do. We used to have a saying at City that all news is local. All of it is local because everything that happens in the world, no matter where it is, has a direct effect on how you live your daily life. Okay, and with that, uh, Gordon Martineau, thank you very much. Uh, a fascinating uh, deep dive into this subject area. It's just an amazing conversation. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Right. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at DNEXT. To hear more episodes and learn about innovation and investment in the Durham region and about the DNEXT Summit, visit us at dnext.com. Until next time. Thank you.